let us pray dear god as you have made this possible for us to gather together today thank you for opening the doors of church again and we pray father that you may speak to us teach us what we don't know meet our expectation of hearing your voice today and i pray father that your word may be a hundred fold for your people for the glory of god in jesus name i pray amen good morning you all greetings also to those who are watching us online glad to be to be in the house of the lord our text which is from ephesians chapter 5 15 to 21 i took the liberty to add verse 14 into my thought as well i believe that this is where paul is picking up as he is exhorting the church of ephesus to be the imitators of god paul begins this chapter to challenge the ephesians church and through it us as well that in all their doing and in all our doing they must imitate god for the glory of god he later pointed the exhortation on immorality and i think brother timothy did well on this last week as he really brought the idea home how much god hates immorality and then the antidote to paul's exhortation was to give thanks paul's exhortation to reprove would thus be confirmed by the consideration that the only way of making immoral things appear in their proper character is to let in on them the light of the gospel as one author said the great practical point is that christians ought to let in and disperse the light then paul gives an additional impulse to the ephesians church to walk as children of the light verse 14 he says for anything that becomes visible is light therefore it says awake o sleeper and arise from the dead and christ will shine on you here i do want to take a minute to explain a difficulty that arises with this quotation the critics of the bible said a difficulty arises as to the source of the quotation we don't know who paul is quoting here we don't know which old testament of the book is he quoting from so they said you see we don't have to listen to paul we really don't have to believe even paul because i personally had conversation with people who think that paul is outdated when he's challenging the church when he's using tough words like foolish when he's using tough words like unwise when he's challenging people to walk on ways that is almost impossible for them to walk on they think he's putting heavy burden on the church and those are his own ideas well i disagree with that and i believe as a church we disagree with that type of thinking about paul as well i believe that every single word that paul wrote is the inspiration of god the holy spirit for his people for the church until he returns so in answer to that i found that there is no difficulty with the formula he says which like the same expression in chapter 4 it is clear to be referred to god or god's word through the prophet he is not saying that this is by the way what i say he said as he says 
Who? God. As God says. But no such words occur in the Old Testament. That's where people get confused. So the passage that comes nearest to them is Isaiah 61. In answer to this, biblical scholars explain that Paul did not quote it from any lost book of the Bible, neither he quoted on his own authority. But what he meant, he meant to give the original words, or he did not meant to give the original words or words, but only the spirit or the nature of the passage. The changes which Paul makes on the form of the prophecy are remarkable and show that it was to its spirit and substance rather than to it was to its precise form and letter that he attached the authority of the inspiration. This is evident from his introducing the word Christ. It must be owned that Apostle Paul makes a very free use of the prophet's words. And one example is that when we read the book of uh, uh, Hebrews, uh, the author there is amazing. And many of my friends who have problem with keeping uh, uh, numbers in mind or those who have problem with their memories, they find a huge joy that, well, you know, uh, look what Hebrews author is saying. It is also written somewhere. He don't know the, he don't know the place. He don't know the reference. But he's saying that I, I, I'm less concerned about the reference. I'm more concerned about the substance and the message of what it says. This is the same thing probably happening with Paul as well. But it must be owned that Apostle Paul makes a very free use of the prophet's words. But the fundamental idea in the prophecy is that when the church, when the church gets the light of heaven, she is not to lie still, as if she were asleep or dead. But it is to be active, is to make use of the light is to use it for illuminating the world. The Apostle Paul maintains that the Ephesian church had got the light of Christ. She, therefore, was not sleep or idle, was not to sleep or idle, but spring forth as if from the grave and pour light on the world. In moving ahead with the same challenge, Paul continually exhorts believers to make heed in Christian living. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, Paul is saying that see that you walk firmly, but consider well the kind of the firmness you're supposed to walk. Do not walk loosely, which is without fixed principles of action, but make sure your rules are of the true kind. Here, Paul is not talking about just the simple things of life. This text, this passage, or the whole chapter is heavily, uh, I believe, that thick with, with the theology of the spiritual life. So here he does not mean that making wise choices for our grocery shopping or, or something we went to buy. No, he is pointing to the spiritual firmness in their daily walk as Christians. In this, Paul is combining two ideas. See that you walk not as unwise, but wise. Paul in 1 Timothy 3.7 said the same thing to Timothy, the pastor of this church, for choosing elders. Elders ought to have a good report of them. 
Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fail into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Because people are watching Christians. Sometimes it can really be a difficult for us to think of that. People are watching every move that Christians make. And some are just watching because they, they want to see different people. They, they expect you to be different. But some are just watching so that they can actually point fingers at us. But in both cases, Christians are the one who feel the burden. This is exactly what Paul is pointing to them. The birth of Ephesus church is at a place which is full of corruption, which is full of idol worship, which is full of the debauchery, the type of debauchery that went, is nowhere found in the Roman Empire other than Corinthians or in Corinth. But Paul's audience at this time are the church, is the church. Paul gives this counsel with the reference to onlookers repeating the same advice in Colossians 4-5 as well. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So the question comes to our mind is why Paul is putting so much emphasis on Christians to look carefully than how they walk. Paul wants them to consider the number the enemies, the number and the enemies of the gospel surrounding them in Ephesus. Their firmness into walk as true believers is the divine requirement of God. God cherishes over his people when they walk as wise Christians so that they may be able to draw others to God for the forgiveness of their sins. Mike also pointed to us uh, two Sundays ago that how important it is for us to be grounded in the gospel. How important it is for us to put on Christ and let him shine. That's why Paul is saying that it's very important for you because there are enemies of the gospel. There are people who, are, who actually don't want people to turn away from, from the worship of Diana. And we know this from Paul's encounter in, in Ephesus uh, in, uh, in the book of Acts. Paul is saying that your right living is going to impact the cause of the gospel. So may I repeat again that God cherishes over his people when they walk as wise Christians. So that they may be able to draw others to God for the forgiveness of their sins. One story I personally remember from my own family. My dad was an engineer and there was an opportunity for him to be involved in a, in a high corruption where he could make lots of money. But being the only Christian on that committee, he refused to do that. So then there is a specific name for Christians that they you know, will be called in our country to degrace them, to, to degrade them and to, to make them think of little themselves. He said, yes, I'm one of those, but I'm not going to give in to your demands or your desire. They could not cheat the company just because my dad would not agree. But later on, there were people who were able to come and talk to him and they said, what a foolishness. And he said, no, this is not foolishness. This is obedience to my God. 
So God opened wonderful opportunities of conversation for him. And we remember some of those people became friends, like good friends with my dad. And they came all the way to, to my dad's funeral from, from far distances when they heard that Mr. Yunus had passed away. And then they were able to hear the Christian message that was preached on a funeral, putting somebody to rest in the peace that God gives us. You see, sometimes maybe our words are not working. Our actions are looked upon. Sometimes our actions are less meaningless to some group and our words do mean to them. So Christians have this heavy responsibility. Paul is telling them in Ephesus, your daily walk is going to matter for the cause of the gospel. And then Paul goes on to talking about walk, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So this, is, this thought is intertwined together, kind of brings the same idea. So the question we need to consider is, what is the nature of this walk that we Christians must have? In answer to this, I present five ways scripture points to us. In my research, I could only find five. There are more. In order to walk as wise, we ought to have knowledge of the true way. We have to have the knowledge of the true way. Jeremiah 6.16 says, Thus says the Lord, he's speaking to the nation, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Jeremiah is challenging the nation that there are two ways going. You are at a crossroad, and I believe Christians are always at a crossroad, where we have to make the choice, we have to, to find the way that will actually honor God, that will actually give us rest, that will actually point us to, to really living the right Christian living so that we may be able to draw others to Christ. But some people, they will not walk in them. As Jeremiah finishes this thought, he said, find rest for your souls. But they said, the people said, we will not walk in it. So it's very important for us to know what is the true way. Matthew 7.14 tells us that for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Paul is challenging the Christian that, you know, it's going to feel difficult for you because when you have lived enough in sin, it, it gets difficult to give up on that. And the forces that want you to stay in them, they are actually also pushing you hard. As we often say when, we, when people get baptized and we said, yeah, brother or sister, you know, be ready. The enemy is going to hate you and the attacks are coming. So be in prayer, be in the fellowship of the brethren, be in the word, so that you may be encouraged, you may be able to fight against the, the schemes of the devil. Knowing the right way is very important for Christians. Number two, we are to follow the light that falls upon our path. Not like the fool who turns aside to darkness only to stumble in it. Proverbs 4, 26, 27, he says, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not diverge to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. How, how will I be able to turn my foot away from evil? He says, first you need to ponder on the way you are going on. 
ponder about this. We need to be thinking about it. We are to follow the light that falls on our path. Number three, we are to foresee the dangers of the way and provide against them. Not like the fool who pass on and are punished. Fool seeks the company of the foolish. Proverbs 22, 3 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. You see, some Christians are thinking, and, and again, I, I don't want to get the politics of this, but you see, COVID-19 is a reality. I, I'm not afraid of this. I'm not going to let it rule my heart. I'm not going to be living in fear that I don't have to go out or don't mingle with people. But I also need to find the way that I know, don't need to get near to somebody who have po been diagnosed positive. God does not want me to risk that and say, well, you know what, I'm some sort, you know, kind of a bulletproof. I'm somehow, you know, iron man, so I won't be affected by it. There is a choice I have to make, but I won't let it rule my heart. I won't let it overwhelm me to do my part. I will ask God for wisdom so that I may see trouble and I may hide from it, not like a fool who keeps walking into this and, and has to pay the price. That's why it's very important for us to foresee the dangers of the way and provide against them. Number four, we are to have the Lord for our companion on the walk by the way, like Enoch who walked with the Lord, Genesis 5.22. He had companion on, on his walk. And it was the Lord himself. We can have companions as our spouses, as our children, as our friends. But Christians are encouraged to seek the companionship of the Lord on every way that they are walking. So that they may be able to draw others, that they may be able to impart a, you know, a spiritual blessing to the one we are having walk with or doing life with. And finally, this is important one for me, in, even in my own life, is that for we are to keep in view the end of our walk. To keep in view the end of our walk. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8.9 said, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. It is very much possible that as a new believer you can feel all the excitement of being a Christian. But if you do not deepen yourself into the gospel, into daily living as a believer. If you do not put on Christ, it's very important that you can actually be self-deceptive. You are self-deceiving yourself. Christian life is definitely a growth that God is willing to be patient with his people. But it is not a life that is keep living in sin. It is not a life that keep living in making those choices that dishonors God. That's why Paul encourages believers in chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That means all those sins were in the, in the church in Ephesus. But Paul is saying, get away with them. Just leave them. 
as Peter is also saying that we have already lived enough in the futility of our minds. We have already spent enough life in sin. So we are to keep in view the end of our walk so that we may be able to glorify God whatever we are doing and whatever we plan to accomplish. So Paul finishes his thought by the application of this principle that believers must be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There can be no wise or careful walking without a due consideration both of the value of time and of the importance of using our opportunities for doing good. Another thing that we need to ponder is that why does Paul mean or what does he mean by the nature of his, this redemption of time or making best use of the time? I think Duncan's translation really pointed to that the word actually means opportunities. It does not mean the mere effort to rescue the fleeting hours of our life from idleness, vanity, distraction or excessive devotion to business in an effort to lay hold of opportunities for doing good. To make the most of them, to allow no distractions of pleasure or life to stand in the way of their right employment. Paul has already mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are to do good to all men. We are to do good to our enemies. After the example of our Lord Jesus Christ making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. It is not because our days are few. Though that is also very re good reason to be active faithfully in our daily Christian walk. The days are evil because we have already lost much time in the futility of our minds. Again, I will remind you from 1 Peter 4.3. James tells us in his letter, we do not know how much time yet remains to us. Christ himself said that when the king went out for, the, for, for his business and he gave work to his workers. And he said, blessed are the workers when the king returned and he found them awake ready to open the door and to serve the king. But if the servants would think, well, our master has gone far away, we don't know when he's going to return, and they fall slumber and sleep, they don't know when the master of the house will come back. It's the same principle that applies to us as a church. So the scripture also teaches us that we have to give an account of all our time and opportunities. The reason Apostle Paul exhorts believers the days are evil is Christians must not lose any time if they desire the evil is to be quickly and effectively reduced. Imagine in the context of the church of Ephesus, how much evil around them. Another observation that I made was thinking about this verse, notice that Paul does not hint the nature of the evil. Yet I think by the nature of the Ephesians' history, it is allowable to suppose that the days were evil, not in themselves, but by the reason of Ephesians' wickedness and foolishness to worship idols and excessive debauchery. Another author thinks that Paul is pointing to evil of sin, 
rather than the evil of punishment. It is part of the evil that men do not see it at all. And that's what gospel does. I did not know that worshipping idol is okay or not okay until the scripture tells me that it is not okay. It is part of the evil that they do not mourn over it. It is the part of the evil that they will do nothing to remove it. So there is therefore all the more reason for Ephesians Christians make a physical or mental effort in all seasons and spheres of Christian life to counteract the evil of the days. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. The charge is also for us today to use all possible tools to be God's hands and feet. His mouth and touch to the people around us because the days are evil and Christ's return is soon. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord for his people? This is a question that dawns everyone, young particularly, children and some of us elders as well or older people as well. What is the will of the Lord? Paul wants believers to know the importance of true knowledge of the will of God for Christians, which is to imitate God in all our doing. I believe that Paul begins this, as, as he begins this chapter here, and he also said somewhere else, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Believers are encouraged to imitate God in all our doing and in all our acts. It is the will of God that believers look to Jesus Christ to understand God's will in whom God supplies the true standard of action to every Christian. If you are confusing about something, how to go about it, Look to Jesus. Read about him in the Gospels. How did he acted in such a situation? If you really hate somebody right now or today, just think about Jesus. How did he act under the mighty hand of the Romans and his own fellow citizens, his own people, the nation of Israel and the Sanhedrin? Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they are doing. Women of Jerusalem, don't cry over me, cry over your children. If we have extra today and we know somebody who's in need, what we must do? Let's read from Matthew 5 onwards and see how the Lord would respond. If any of you are having less love for the church, just think about what would Christ do in that. He gave himself for the church as a sacrifice. If you think that you've been betrayed and you are hurting, look to Jesus. How did he respond to that? Paul says that he bare the cross just because of the joy that was set before him. Can we say, can we think that Lord, all I'm concerned about is whatever I do on this earth, I'm concerned about what I will get in heaven. 
the rewards that God have for his people. The things of this world will grow dim. The appreciation of this world will grow dim. So Paul is saying it is the will of God that believers look to Jesus Christ to understand God's will in whom God supplies the true standard of action to every Christian. The direction of our life is to be determined by Jesus' precepts. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I believe that's the crux of this, this chapter, verse 18. Well, it's easy for me to go through this verse and just simply say, well, we are Christians and all of you would agree with me. Well, we are not, you know, drunkards. We don't drink much. And I could be over with that. But I believe that this is important for me to put an emphasis on this verse here because it have two great points that Paul wants to make here for the Christians and I'm addressing to the young and to little children in our church. Please give me your attention. And those of you who need to be reminded. Now Paul moves to warning against drunkenness. The heathen festivals of Ephesians temple worship were remarkable for songs of drunken partying and for idol worshipping. Pastor Glenn has already alluded to the history of Ephesian church, so I won't get much detail of here. But the excitement of the worshippers found went in the singing and losing senses in process of worshipping deity. It was very important, it was part of the religious ritual that they must get drunk in order to get near to the deity, in order to feel the deity, in order to experience the deity. Either it be Diana or any other idol uh, that was worshipped that day or evening. So the tremendous sin of overindulgence must have had a great hold upon a commercial and heathen city like Ephesus. To Paul, it was necessary that Ephesians Christians should be aware of such an deceptive depravity. Because they, what, is, what is the emphasis here? Worship. And that's what our topic is today, together in spirit, together in worship. Paul, do not expand the danger of the debauchery here. And I believe the reason would be that this, his audience know it really well and must have witnessed its evil around them. However, I do want to take this opportunity to say a few things on what the Bible says about drunkenness before we look at the true antidote to drunkenness. The Bible very clearly teaches that, number one, it dishonors God's law. Number two, it disturbs the reason of man. How many of you had ever thought it will be a great idea go to a drunk man and ask him about a serious question of life? It, dis it disturbs the reason of man. It endangers the health of the body. God wants us to be good steward of our body. It injures the soul. Hosea 4.11 They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine which take away the understanding. Number five, it wastes the substance and tends to beggary. 
Proverbs 23, 20 to 21. Hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttons, eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Number six is consumes precious time and deteriorates the character of work. We all know this, that you can't go to work drunk. Drunkenness is the cause of other sins, such as swearing, fighting, shamelessness. Number eight, it unfits believers for Christian duties. That's probably related to all of us the most. We cannot think that, hey, you know what, I can be drunk and, and still perform my Christian duties and I can go around and do visitations. At least I can't think of that. And number nine, above all its dangers, the big one is it keeps people out of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 he said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul warns against the dangers of drunkenness in Romans 13, 13 and he continues to say, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Therefore, Christians must avoid it, abstaining altogether from intoxicating drinks on the grounds of Christians' usefulness on basis of God's word and as part of his will for his people. As well, we Christians are charged by the Apostle Paul that we should use our influence to rescue others from his disaster fascination. We should abstain from such a dangerous motivation as this, for its effects has been hostile to unity of spirit. Us as church might think, well, we don't indulge in drinking, as we are thinking about the dangers of drunkenness. Here is, I want, attention of all of the adults sitting in this room and watching us online. I may extend the precaution here to all those excitements of a sensual nature which exhaust and hinder the spirit. As biblical scholar explained this verse and said, wine is but a specimen of a class of stimulants. All that begins from without belongs to the senses. Drunkenness may come from anything wherein excess from overindulgence in society, in pleasure, in music, and in the delight of listening to debating. Even from the excitement of sermon, podcast, and religious meetings. Where do I catch this idea from? While I was preparing, God pointed me to, to one text in Old Testament, Isaiah 51, 21. 
the prophet tells us of those who are drunken. He's talking to the nation of Israel. And not with wine. Based on this verse, another author challenges Christians and said, in the same way, bases upon this passage, warning against excess of bodily exercise, excess of intellectual exercises, excess even in our hours of work, excess in a word as far as to influences against Christian sober-mindedness. Prophet is very clear about that don't think that we can only get drunk with just with wine or with intoxicating drinks. He's rebuking the nation by saying, therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. They were drunk with lots of other things. It is easy for us to think as well that, well, this verse really doesn't relate to me. But I think Paul challenges us our way of life. That's what is the topic here. Walk. The Christian journey. The Christian life. So it is very possible that I may not be a drunkard. But I'm consumed with busyness. I would remember that as a student one time I, I was just so busy with work and, and school work and everything and, and as our professor walks into the class and I was really discouraged that day and I, I didn't know, I, could, I was thinking, Lord, what is really, is, is there a sin that is hindering me from really experiencing you, able to worship you and all of that and, and as our professor opened his mouth and started teaching us, this was his the first thing that came out of his mouth, he said, sometimes when the enemy cannot make you to fall in sin, he will make you busy. And, and to me, it felt like almost that's what I needed to hear. It hit between the eyes. And I said, yes, I'm so busy. How can I really experience God? Is God should be part of my schedule? Or is he demanding, is he requiring of me to have fellowship with him and to really enjoy him and to be able to worship him? It is possible for us that we are not drunk with wine, but something else. Then we move on to verse 18 to 21. Paul gives diametrically opposite, yet true antidote to drunkenness. There is real contrast here exhibited between fullness of wine and fullness of the Holy Spirit. There is an intensity of feeling produced in both cases for holy living and engagement to God in worship. The Ephesians got it right. They had to have an influence of something in order to experience the deity. But their substance was the wrong substance. God sees the need of human beings who are forgiven in Jesus Christ and he said they need the Holy Spirit in order to worship me, in order to experience me, in order to have me in their life and that's what he blesses the church with. Amen? The Holy Spirit. Drunkenness is one intensity of feeling produced by stimulating the senses. The Holy Spirit by vivifying the spiritual life within. The one commences with the impulses from without, the other is guarded by force, 
forces from within. Drunkenness tends to ruin while promises to bring you close to yourself or in the Ephesians case to the divine. It doesn't meet the promise. But the Holy Spirit brings salvation and satisfy with the union with the Creator. Holy Spirit fullness will keep the soul holy, the body pure and render the Christian fit for the worship and the service of God on earth and meet for the fulfillment and enjoyment of God in heaven. Those who don't have the Holy Spirit, they get drunk. To forget their misery. In Ephesians case, they get drunk so they could get near to God. But then they end up doing all sorts of evil. And if we really study the history, which is really not my point here, but it's amazing that what sort of debauchery and idol worship and, and sexual immorality was, was at its peak during those nights and days of worshipping the, the deities. So brothers and sisters, Paul challenges us that it is possible for us to be drunk with something, even as Christians. But he said when you are missing, when you feel that the relationship with God is damaged or relationship with God is not at where you want it, then we need to sit down and to think. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing that Paul is calling us. We all need to take the time. That's why Jesus Christ himself would went into the wilderness to spend time with the Father. That's also very important for us in our Christian life as well. In order to fulfill the desire of our heart in worshipping God and to enjoy him. Jesus himself revealed this beautiful truth to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 23-24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. It's Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We don't need anything else. We don't need any incense. We don't need any candles. We don't need any proper clothing or anything. We just need the Holy Spirit. So what does the presence of the Holy Spirit exhibit in a believer's life? If you want to have a self-check, Paul explained this in the next three verses, which Brother uh, Werner is going to shed more light on. And uh, he, I would invite Brother Werner to please come up and uh, take your time. Uh, in the next three verses, the joy caused by the Holy Spirit finds a threefold expression in spiritual songs, in giving thanks to God and mutual submission. Pastor Amr, be filled with the Spirit. The New Living Translation of verse 18 renders it this way. <clears throat> Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is linked to what follows in one complete sentence that goes from verses 18 through 21. And it looks like this. There's an overriding, overarching command, principal clause, be filled with the Spirit. Out of that flows four subordinate clauses, four results of that filling, speaking to one another, singing and making music, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. We look for a moment at the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3. We find a similar structure, except that here, the principal imperative clause is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, instead of be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly are actually two sides of the same coin. John Stott puts it like this. We must be careful never to separate the Spirit from the Word, to obey the Word, and to surrender to the Spirit are virtually identical. Back to Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, or addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, it's not the musicians up front who sing to the congregation. It's you and me singing to each other. And we do so by drawing on the reservoir of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs that belongs to us. Now, I don't have time to go into the meaning of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as much as we'd like to, and as important as that study may be. That's a subject for another sermon. If you want to explore that, I recommend James Jansen's book on the subject, Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs, The Road to Unity and Spiritual Majority, Spiritual Maturity. Some of you will remember James Jansen when he was here with us at the Tabernacle. For our purposes, let's just say Paul is pointing to a variety of types of songs. Now, the fact that we have such a rich range of possibilities to choose from doesn't mean that anything goes at any time. It means that those who plan the singing have a great responsibility on their shoulders to choose songs that reinforce and articulate the content of the scriptures that confront us in that service. The Colossians 3 passage elaborates on 
than what it means to be speaking to one another in our singing. Like this. Here Paul explains that our singing involves both teaching and admonishing. Why these two terms? Teaching is about imparting doctrinal truth necessary for spiritual growth and maturity. And admonishing is about speaking words of warning or of encouragement. And we need both. It's true that should happen in our personal conversation with one another, as well as in the public preaching of the word. We're looking at something different and mysterious here, teaching and admonishing through our singing. I'm sure we've all experienced songs that open up doctrinal truths that strengthen our awareness of God, or songs that have brought conviction for sin, that call for repentance, and songs that bring comfort in times of distress, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When we sing, we address one another, but we also sing and make melody in our hearts to God. Two audiences in that order. It starts with our brothers and sisters. Our ability to worship God is linked to our relationship with one another. By the way, making melody in this passage in the Greek is literally psalming or striking the harp. I think there's a strong emphasis on instruments. And one commentator suggests guitar playing to the Lord. One more important thing about singing. At first reading, it appears that the fullness of the Spirit and the Word are the dynamic which generates the actions that follow. Speaking, teaching, admonishing, making music, giving thanks, submitting. And that understanding is valid as far as it goes. But some exegetes maintain that these participles have instrumental force. That is, be filled with the Spirit, let the Word dwell richly in you, by teaching, by admonishing, by making melody, and so on. In his excellent volume, Music in the New Testament according to Paul, David Detweiler writes, 
the way in which the Christian community can be filled with the Spirit includes doing the very things mentioned in the participial clauses, Ephesians 5. In that case, our singing is one of the ways through which we experience the fullness of the Spirit and the dynamic power of the Word dwelling richly in us. So, should it read, be filled with the Spirit, or be filled by the Spirit? I'm convinced it's both. So that being filled with the Spirit and making music serve in a symbiotic relationship. Our singing creates an environment which opens us up to the working of the Spirit and Word. And at the same time, the dynamic of Spirit and Word shapes our singing together. Let's summarize what we've been discussing about our worship from these passages. First, the norm for the whole worshiping community is an ongoing, continuing filling of the Spirit, along with the energizing dynamic of the Word of Christ. Second, the infilling of Spirit and Word will express itself in singing among the worshiping community and towards God, drawing on a broad variety of songs. Third, our singing is a means of edifying the church through teaching and admonishing those we worship with. And finally, filling with spirit and word serves in a reciprocal relationship with singing, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. And incidentally, giving thanks and submitting to one another, I don't even need to talk about that. I hasten to emphasize that what we've said here must not be taken as a technique or a formula for authentic worship. We cannot assume that singing together by itself guarantees spiritual growth. Only as we open ourselves personally and corporately, day by day, week by week, to the, to the transforming working of the Spirit in our midst, allowing the word of Christ to dwell richly in us as God's people. Can we learn to teach and admonish each other in our singing? It will be an ongoing process of discovery and learning, perhaps stumbling here and there in the process, but setting our course in reliance on the indwelling spirit <coughs> whom Jesus has given to guide us into all truth. Let's pray. <coughs> Gracious Lord.
your angels sing in ceaseless worship before your throne. And you call us also to sing. Teach us, we pray, to allow the Holy Spirit so to fill us that we may make the most <coughs> of every opportunity in these days. We may edify one another as we sing and glorify your wonderful name. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. <laughs>